Good evening. The glass ceiling shattered Eric Adams names New York's first woman police commissioner. The death of an African-American intellectual icon. The inside story of the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell. And the truth be revealed. Will the truth be revealed? And the city's 100 worst landlords based on evictions. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. COVID's winter surge is making itself felt in the Northeast. Despite high vaccination levels and indoor mask mandates, New York City is reacting. New York University today strongly encouraged faculty members to hold final exams online and canceled non-essential, non-academic gatherings as the number of COVID-19 cases and hospitalization rises across the city. 176 people were admitted to New York City hospitals with suspected COVID-19 cases on Monday, the highest figure since the spring and a 72 and a half percent increase since November 30th. NYU issued a new guidelines a day after uh, its new guidelines a day after Cornell University announced that it would move its final exams online and cancel in-person events after seeing a significant number of cases of the Omicron variant of COVID-19 on campus. Fordham University yesterday said it would require students, faculty, and staff members returning for the spring 2022 semester to get COVID-19 booster shots. Meanwhile, in Minnesota, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin has pleaded guilty to violating George Floyd's civil rights. Chauvin's plea today means that he'll not face a federal trial in January, though he could end up spending more years behind bars when a judge sentences him at a later date. Chauvin has already been convicted of state murder and manslaughter charges for pinning his knee against Floyd's neck as the black man said he couldn't breathe during a May 25th, 2020 arrest. He was sentenced to 22 and a half years in that case. The federal charges include two counts alleging as Chauvin deprived Floyd of his rights by kneeling on his neck as he was handcuffed and not resisting and then failing to provide medical care. He's expected to serve 15 years in prison on the state charges and seven and a half years on parole. The federal charges could add another 27 years to his sentence. And New York City's mayor-elect Eric Adams isn't wasting time as he announced Nassau County Chief of Detectives Keechan Sewell would be the next commissioner of the New York City Police Department, the first woman and third black person to be named as the city's top cop. Adams chose Sewell to fill the role being vacated by outgoing NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea. I'm so proud this day to tear down barriers. Mm -hmm. This amazing law enforcement professional, she carried with her throughout her career a sledgehammer, Mm -hmm. and she crushed every glass ceiling that was put in her way. And today, she has crashed and destroyed the final one we need in New York City. We have a strong, powerful new police commissioner, Chief Sewell. I have been immersed in policing, from patrol officer to detective, my experience as a hostage negotiator, bringing transparency and accountability to policing up to and including my role as chief of detectives. I bring a different perspective, committed to make sure the department looks like the city it serves and making the decision, just as Mayor-elect Adams did, to elevate women and people of color to leadership positions. It is said that the NYPD is the best of the best. We're about to get even better. (laughs) As Mayor-elect Adams has said, I will have the backs of my officers. 
for they must have the backs of the public. I will hold our officers accountable, and I know you will do the same for me. Nassau County Chief of Detectives Keechan Sewell, the next commissioner of the New York City Police Department. Chief Sewell will have her work cut out for her in New York City, where relations between cops and much of the public is poor after high-profile incidents of police violence and widespread civil unrest after a Minneapolis cop killed George Floyd. Also, although crime is historically low, Despite the pandemic, several shocking murders have New Yorkers on edge about a return to more violent times and the threat of easy access to guns, including the walkout a couple of days ago at a Staten Island high school where kids were worried after there were several incidents where guns were pulled on the campus or near the school. Lurking below the surface, another problem, Black Lives Matter. Brooklyn spokesperson Anthony Beckford calls a uh, calls it a uh, what's going on in New York City, a form of racist corruption. That's one of the main problems he thinks is in the uh, New York City Police Department and needs to be addressed. He says some dirty cops are exploiting black youths for criminal purposes. The known tale within our community that you have plainclothes officers who come in. They have most of these kids as informants. Most of these kids do their bit. It's been proven in Chicago. It's been proven in Atlanta that that's been going on. So why would we be surprised it's going on in one of the biggest cities in America right now? What needs to happen is that we need accountability. Because how are you going to tell the kid, oh, you can't commit this, but yet the kid is watching TV and seeing that those who are supposed to protect them are getting away with crimes daily. In Staten Island, a few days ago, thousands of students walked out of the school in protest of safety Mm -hmm. situations there. It amazed me that it's gotten to the point where students are walking out of class and protesting. They said there's like nobody there. The police aren't there. When they want them, they're not there. And when you don't want them, they're trying to arrest you for a cigarette, selling a cigarette. Exactly, because cause what ended up happening is that there was a purposeful made slowdown. And, of course, you know, there are people out there who not have positive intentions for our communities, not even for their own fellow community members. But then when you do a slowdown to purposely allow these activities to continue to grow and to continue to, to, continue to empower them, then that's you creating the fire instead of you trying to put out the fire, just so that way you have some type of significance or validity. And that shouldn't be, the people's lives should not be put in jeopardy just for you to make the people feel that you're needed. That's been a tactic that we've known that's happened. You've seen it with the blue walkout or what they call the blue flu. Many of us didn't even know about until Pat Lynch started, you know, saying it more and more in the media and was like, oh, so this is what it means. Then to the day, you know, when it comes to these kids' safety, these kids have a right to be safe. And when you put in their life in jeopardy, then you need, to, you need to be held accountable the same way those out there who are committing these acts need to be held accountable because you're allowing it to happen. That's called negligence, neg- negligence and dereliction of duty. Then if oh. you was in the, in the military with me, you would get court-martialed for that. What could a mayor, Eric Adams, do to correct the errors of the de Blasio administration? One thing that he can do and that I've talked to him many times about is actually making sure that you listen to the people. Your true stakeholders are the people. Your employers are the people. Being mayor-elect to show the difference between you and de Blasio would mean that you would actually listen to the people, sit down with the people, have conversations with them, and allow them to be at the table to help make decisions. When it comes to public safety, social justice, education, and much more, because all of these things go hand in hand. It's a revolving door effect, especially in underserved communities like ours. This is something that's definitely tactful towards us. And if we're going to talk about being the people's mayor, let's, let's make sure that being the people's mayor means that you're also representing fully 
the people who are underserved and underrepresented. Does anything like that? No, I look forward to see what this administration has going on. Um, certain things I do not agree with when it comes to year-long schooling, increase of police force, because this, you know we have the greatest number of officers than any other city and more, mostly most countries. And so like that, we need more. In order to fight crime and impoverished areas, we need to get rid of poverty. Guns and badges don't answer that problem. Anthony Beckford is spokesperson for Black Lives Matter Brooklyn. Sewell promises her first priority would be tackling violent crime in the city. She also defended the use of broken windows policing and the anti-crime unit, a controversial NYPD plainclothes unit. The anti-crime unit was supposed to go after violent crime and illegal guns, but was criticized for aggressive tactics and its involvement in a number of shootings. Adams wants to bring back the anti-crime unit as the anti-gun unit. And in more news, Bell Hooks, the influential author, critic, feminist, and public intellectual, died today at 69, surrounded by her friends and family. She lived in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Born as Gloria Jean Watkins, the fourth of seven siblings, she attended segregated schools and went on to Stanford University in California, earning advanced degrees at the University of Wisconsin and UC Santa Cruz. She adopted her great-grandmother's name as her pen name in lowercase letters. She told interviewers in order to emphasize the substance of books, not who I am. She returned to Kentucky in 2004 to teach at Berea College. In 2010, the school opened the Bell Hooks Institute. Activist Cornell West tweeted today, she was an intellectual giant, spiritual genius, and freest of persons. We shall never forget her. Gloria Brown Marshall is a constitutional law professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and host of the WBAI program, Law of the Land, heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Brown says Hook's use of her grandmother's name in lowercase is what initially attracted her. The name of her grandmother, I believe, in and called herself Bell Hooks, lowercase. And that always fascinated me, why she would keep her name lowercase. And um, she's a poet and a feminist and a public intellectual, professor and activist, and um, someone who wrote extensively on the African-American experience. And what really drew Bell Hooks to me was her way of doing these things all in love. And I thought, wow, this is it's so amazing that, that she, no matter what she wrote, you felt the love in it. She wasn't trying to chastise or, you know, just be mean-spirited. She was critiquing a lot of the African-American as well as the feminist experience, but she was doing it from a position of love. And I think that's what drew a lot of people to her. It was like having a, a deep, warm embrace by an auntie who was there to give you advice and hear your sins and secrets without judging you so harshly that you never came back. What do you think it was about what she wrote that made her such a popular writer? Because she wrote about the pain that many people have, especially women and African-Americans, but she wrote about it as a communal pain. And the fact that she was an unabashed public intellectual and that's what, all, what was also something that drew me to her, because I see myself as a public intellectual. I see myself as writing what's needed for the, for the academy, but also always writing a version or a way in which it could be accessible to the general public. And that's what drove her. She would look for the people who had her books and had underlined it and, and marked it up and turned over the pages because she said when the regular people are doing that with her work, 
when mother and daughter are sharing her feminist books, when the African-American community and the churches, as well as the regular um, elderly person at home reads her book, then she's done what she's been placed on the planet to do. And I just, I believe that. I sincerely believe that people have things inside of them that should not be restricted because there are so many people in need of that information. And that's what made her so accessible to people because she made her work accessible to people. I was rereading the book, Rock My Soul, Black People and Self-Esteem. And going back and underlining it, there are places in it where she's talking about how even black children and young people who come from from well-heeled families of the upper classes still have self-esteem issues, wondering whether or not they're worthy or have imposter syndrome. People are coming from other countries and taking advantage of what's happening here. And she's writing about this, and she's writing about this over a decade ago. It was in her book that I first saw Generational Wounds that people of African descent were carrying trauma from generation after generation. It maybe had been in sociological circles, but she was the one who took it to the outside world and said, look at what has happened generation after generation, and then maybe you could better understand the need for self-esteem, the healing of self-esteem, so that we can enjoy our world and not let racism color everything that we do. She was only 69 years old. That's young, 69 Unfortunately, she had had, they said, an extended illness. I hope God rests her soul and that she lies not in power but rises up through her work for everyone to know the blessing that we have in having had her on this planet. Gloria Brown Marshall is a constitutional law professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and host of the WBAI program, Law of the Land, heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Ibram X. Kendi, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, shared a quote from Hook's book, All About Love. Like all great mysteries, we are all mysteriously called to love no matter the conditions of our lives, the degree of our depravity or despair. The persistence of this call gives us reason to hope. Without hope, we cannot return to love. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. Socialite Ghislaine Maxwell's legal team is seeking to call lawyers who represent three of her accusers to testify when her defense case opens in federal court in New York tomorrow. Prosecutors have asked Judge Allison Nathan to block the three lawyers from having to testify. Defense attorneys have said they plan to call up to 35 witnesses, an unusual number, including three who have requested to testify anonymously. A family spokesperson said Maxwell is unlikely to testify in her own defense as she is too fragile. The salation testimony of sex escapades involving underage women and famous men, allegedly organized by Maxwell, has his own elephant in the room. Financier Jeffrey Epstein, who killed himself in the federal lockup in Manhattan. Vicki Ward is executive producer of Chasey Ghislaine, which is currently streaming on Discovery+. Plus. She also knew separately both Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. You can see what's coming. The defense has been very clear. Its strategy is about three M's. Uh, memory manipulation and money and they claim that the accusers in this case were interviewed by the government with the FBI presence there are records and that they were manipulated when Jeffrey Epstein died greedy civil lawyers manipulated them into cooperating yeah. about Guillen the defense arguments they changed their they basically they changed their story in order to get money from the Epstein compensation victims fund that will hold up we'll have to see they might actually have a legal strategy to win. 
They hope so. I mean, we're going to have to see. I mean, I, there is no question that this trial is more complicated than the straightforward, the more straightforward uh, trials of people like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby, because um, the person who was supposed to be on trial, Jeffrey Epstein, is dead. It is made more complicated by the fact that every day we keep hearing about the heinous sex crimes committed by a man who managed to escape justice all his life. I guess we will see how this shakes out. I mean, it's going to be the timing is also going to be interesting because if the defence only lasts two to three days, which is what they said when we broke at the end of last week, that means that closing arguments will happen right before uh, the Christmas break. And there is concern that's been expressed by the defence that the jury may want to rush to convict before the Christmas break. And the judge, the judge has listened to that and has, has said she's going to think about it. But it is a real problem, I think. Is this a story about Israeli spy networks interconnected with the with mobsters and and uh, uh, people on the edge of being mobsters and uh, and legitimate business people, or is it just a retelling of Glengarry Glen Ross or Death of a Salesman and banality of evil and all that? Yeah. <laughs> The frustrating thing from a journalist's point of view, particularly from my point of view, having sort of covered Jeffrey Epstein since 2002, is that he was undoubtedly a very complicated, mysterious character. We still don't know where all his wealth really came from. There are many people who say that he was a spy. There are many people, there are some people who say he had mob connections. This trial, unfortunately, is not going to provide any answers about any other dimension of his life other than his sordid sex life. But the, 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 um, to your point, you know, the mystery about who Jeffrey Epstein was uh, remains a mystery, and uh, it's not going to be this trial that gives the answers. Hopefully, there are trials coming, potential trials coming down the pipeline that may uh, give us more indication of what you know, his, his, where his money came from. That may end up, you know, the trial between David Boys and Alan Dershowitz, uh, who are trying to get each other disbarred. Dershowitz certainly wants to call Leslie Wexner who was uh, one of Jeffrey Epstein's clients to the stand. So, you know, there is a chance that we may learn more, but there's also a chance that we'll never know. Is this something that's going to contribute to Me Too, or is it just so out in left field that it really, you don't know what to make of it? If it wasn't for the Me Too movement, Jeffrey Epstein would never have been rearrested, and nor would Ghislaine Maxwell. I mean, this whole story happened in plain sight. I know that all too well. And Jeffrey Epstein reckoned that he'd already paid a price for his sex crimes when he went to jail with a ridiculously cushy sentence in 2009. And it was only after 
the Miami Herald did its excellent series that wasn't really reporting on anything new. The difference was that this time, in the middle of the Me Too movement, 10 years later, Congress was outraged. And because Congress was outraged, the FBI decided they better take a second look. That is why we are where we are now. So no, the, the Me Too movement has everything to do with this. Why didn't his friends and the people around him say anything if they knew what was going on? So here's the question. Did they know what was going on or did they just think that Jeffrey Epstein hung around with sort of models in their 20s, which is a bit seedy, but it's not illegal? And how many people really knew and who thought he just had an eccentric lifestyle but didn't know? I mean, one of the things that the defense is going to talk about is the halo effect of Jeffrey Epstein. They're going to have a psychological expert talk about how certain very narcissistic sort of sociopaths are able to compartmentalize their lives and dazzle people so that people only see what they want them to see. One of my frustrations is because I, I sort of want to report on the socioeconomic pyramid that supported this man, which they were rich men. And it's a great question. What did they know? What did they not know? Unfortunately, this trial is not going to give us any insight into that. We hear about these powerful men. We've heard about Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, various billionaires being on Jeffrey Epstein's planes, but that's the only mention there is of them. There's no explanation as to why they would have been on the planes, unfortunately. Vicki Ward is executive producer of Chasing Ghislaine, which is currently streaming on Discovery+. Plus. Les Wexner is an American billionaire businessman, the founder and chairman emeritus of L Brands and Victoria's Secret. He had a close relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. In related news, two judges in New York ruled that a secret Jeffrey Epstein settlement deal that Prince Andrew says shields him from a sexual assault lawsuit should be made public. The deal was signed in 2009 between Epstein and Virginia Roberts Jeffrey, who is suing Prince Andrew for allegedly having sex with her three times when she was 17. He strongly denies the allegation. And finally, today, the Right to Counsel New York City Coalition Just Fix and the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project released the COVID-19 Worst Evictors list, listing the top 20 landlords who have sued the most tenants since COVID began. The group says the list features never-before-seen data based on the number of households sued and demonstrates how the widespread use of housing court to threaten and evict tenants by particular landlords is part of what's driving the eviction crisis. Randy Dillard is the Right to Counsel New York City Coalition steering committee member get people to court in the middle of a pandemic at a rapid speed you know and even though we've got a moratorium in place they still taking people to court what happens to them when they become evicted in the middle of a pandemic well they, well, they go to the shelter if they ain't got no other place to go that's where they're going you know in the middle of a pandemic unless they go to a relative but majority of the people are black and brown people who have no other places to go but to a shelter. And then that creates homelessness. Mm -hmm. So we back at square one again in helping the city with the homeless problem. Because we're evicting people. You know, until this pandemic is over with the way that we, we, we see it as a coalition, 
is that nobody should be evicted in the middle of a pandemic, especially for no fault at all. We lost 41,000 people here in New York to the pandemic. Have you ever been evicted? No, but I've come, I came close to being evicted. That's why I do this fight, because my landlord took me to court for a non-payment of rent, but I didn't owe him any rent. I have a Section 8 voucher, and Section 8 came in and did the inspection of my apartment, and my apartment didn't pass uh, inspection. So Section 8 stopped paying them their portion of the rent, but I had to pay my portion of the rent. So my landlord took me to court for what Section 8 didn't pay them, when all he had to do was fix the repairs. Is this typical of what happens? Yes. Yes, yes. They, they slumlord. They don't want to do repairs for some reason. And then sometimes they are selling the building, and they want you out. They want to, to, to change the rent to market rate rent. They don't want to follow the guidelines. In the past, they limited the major capital improvements, and there was a package of laws passed. Hasn't this made things better, and why not? Well, it's made things a little bit better, but we are now trying to pass the right to counsel statewide for the whole state. What would you like to see this list help you achieve? Them stop taking people to court right now. Freeze it until we learn more about this pandemic. You know? But we know the kills and we know that it's invisible. We can't see it, right? Next month, the rent moratorium runs out. Yes, uh, January, I think, the 15th. What happens then? Tenants are going to be going to, going to court. The ERAP money done ran out, and if they ain't got no way of getting no money to pay their rent, they're going to get put out. How else? Mm-hmm. And then we're going to have a homeless problem. Anything like that? If people like you and other people that's in the media, if y'all don't get the story out to move the people to understand what we're fighting for to help humanity, then it stays the way it is. It's not going to change. Randy Dillard is a member of the Right to Counsel New York City Coalition Steering Committee. You can access the COVID-19 Worst of Victors list at worstofvictorsnyc.org. In August 2021, there were 47,916 homeless people, including 14,946 homeless children sleeping each night in the New York City municipal shelter system. Thousands more live on the streets and in subways. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. The news produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.